you have your Bibles this morning, I would ask that you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Now, obviously, we'll have the passage up on the screen. Um, This morning, I was telling Christy, I said, I had to kind of pull out some of of my seminary uh, experience going through this passage. Um because of the way it is, the way Paul writes it. If you read through this passage, one thing that it's verses 15 through 23, and you'll realize that it's actually uh, pretty much two sentences, the entire passage is. Paul is a fanatic for writing run-on sentences. And so if he were taking an English class today, his grades would not be very good. All right, yeah, yeah. There'd be a red pen, we'd be marking him out and stuff. We'd say we need more periods, we need more semicolons, whatever that might be. And, um, and so, but there is a wealth of information in this, in these few verses that we're going to try to break down. And it all sort of builds upon itself. And so that's what we're going to be looking. And so if you're there this morning, um, I want to read this passage and then... I'm going to begin the message. And so this morning's message is entitled to know God. I told Christy, I said, she ripped off my sermon on Wednesday night in the Bible study and didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. And then I really start getting into the scripture after Wednesday. I usually start really nailing down my sermons starting around Thursday, Thursday, Friday of of the week. And uh, that's me getting into it and reading it over and over and over, looking at other passages and stuff. And as I was reading through it, I was like, Christy, ripped off my sermon, didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. So anyway, this morning's message is entitled, To Know God. And this is what Paul writes. Now, if you remember, he's been writing to the church and explaining to them about how we have been chosen, we have been predestined for good works, and we have been chosen uh, for an eternal inheritance. That's what we've been given. And, and that's being in His presence for all eternity. And now we break into another section, and he begins it by saying this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom And of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He he worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's the first sentence. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank You this word today, a word that is easily just skimmed over as it 
may not seem to some to pack very much theological import. Or it may just be a simple gesture of kindness of Paul towards the church. But in reality, as we look in there, there is eternal truth in this passage that bears much weight for our own salvation, for our own perseverance. And Father, I pray that we would adopt this mentality towards others, that we would give thanksgiving and that we would pray for others, and that others would pray for us and pray these same exact truths. Father, may we be blessed by the reading of your word this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul was tremendously thankful for the church. And when I say the church, I mean the church big C, okay? For the church universal. He was thankful for all the churches that the Lord had blessed his ministry with, that God had led him to plant during his missionary journeys. It is apparent throughout each of his letters that Paul's gratitude for the church is due in large part because it is evidence of God's sovereign work in the ministry of Paul's life. And so Paul being ripped from the snatches of death by God, and when I say death, I mean eternal death by God, and being placed in this unique time and opportunity to be able to instigate the beginning of these churches, Paul sees the fruit of his labors not as buildings are erected, not as playgrounds are built around, not as canned lights and stages are erected and things like that, but as the people of God are erected in faith and bear that faith out in love and in good works. Paul is seeing the fruits of his labors. And if you read through Acts and you read through his, la- through his letters, you know that his labor was not one that was simple. It was not one that was easy. But in fact, his labor for the churches, for the beginning of God's church, was one that was wrought with challenges, pain, sacrifice, and near-death experience, ultimately leading to his imprisonment and his death. And so Paul sees the fruit of his labors in these individuals who are loving one another and who are believing in God. As a pastor, I can tell you that as one who is in love with God's Word and in love with God, that there is no greater joy and I would say satisfaction and contentment than seeing the people you've been called to pastor fall in love with God's Word. There are some who fall in love with the stuff of ministry, building plans, programs, and things like that. Now, those things are not bad things inherently. They're not bad things. But you can, in fact, often I think many do, 
misunderstand building programs, building buildings, large numbers of individuals walking through the front door as a successful ministry. But a successful ministry is not about how big your, your budget is. A successful ministry is not about how many people necessarily grace the front doors. A successful ministry is not all about glitz and glamour. We have been called, ministers of the truth, have been called to lead people to greater faithfulness and into discipleship. That's what we've been called to. So many of us could count on, we don't have enough fingers on our hands to count the number of established Christian, and I'll put that in little c, institutions who have a wealth of stuff but are deficient in knowing God. And I don't mean knowing about God. I mean actually knowing God. In this passage that we've read, to, read today, Paul says, For this reason, he gives thanks and prays for the church. Now, oftentimes when you see that phrase, for this reason, or therefore, it refers to the passage behind that has come before it. Now, certainly... Paul could give thanks for what he has just described, that God has chosen us for, for the foundations of the earth, for faith and good works, uh, that thanking God for his providence and all of those things. But in this case, Paul is not referring, his for this reason is not referring to what he has just mentioned. It's for this. He is thanking them, thanking God and praying for the church and the reason is for their faith in Christ and their love for the saints. So certainly Paul is thankful for all of God's provision. But in this case, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is thankful that the ministry there at, in Ephesus is one that is built on the truth. It is built on faith in Christ and love for the saints. Now you might think, isn't that the nature of all churches? And the sad reality is it's not. It's not. But if our goal if our primary mission is not to build the, our faith in Christ Jesus and to love the saints, then what are we doing? We're wasting resources is what we're doing. That's what we're doing. If all we're doing is spinning our wheels, then really we ought to just close up shop. We've been praying for a while that the Lord would provide somebody to buy this facility that we're surrounded in. We've been praying for a while that the Lord would lead us to a new location. But the reality is this. 
is that you can glitz and glamour the body of Christ up with fresh drywall, with brick and mortar, better lighting, a better parking lot that you don't need a four-wheel drive in. You can do all of those things. But if we are not loving Christ and loving the saints, and I will even go as far as to say loving our community, then nothing's going to change. Changing an address does not change hearts and minds. I'm afraid that that is what many, not necessarily here, but many in the church believe is what ministry is. If you have all been in significant business meetings at times, we get so caught up and spend all of our time on electric bills, we get caught up in the cost of the children's program, all those kids are blowing all of our money, now the senior adults cannot go to McDonald's together. Now, I've not heard those conversations here, but I have heard those conversations. And oftentimes I wonder if you really see the heart of the church at a business meeting. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, you can come on a Sunday morning and you, you hear the singing and stuff and you hear the preaching and all those sorts of things. And then when you get to the business meeting, you know, if it's all about carpet and drywall and electric bills and whether or not the children are wasting all of our money, but it's not about how many people came to Christ this month? How many people are we sending out into the mission field? You, you see where I'm going here. Paul was not interested about buildings being erected and all that kind of stuff. Here's what he wanted to see. He wanted to see that their faith in Christ was moving forward and that they were loving the saints. That's what he was concerned about. And that's what we need to be concerned about. So it says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So that the question is this, what is Paul praying for? First, he says this. He says, in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That is a long, drawn-out way of Paul saying this, I am praying that you would know God more. That's what he's saying. I am praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom, the revelation of knowledge in Him, and that your hearts would be enlightened. J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance and this the christian has in a way that no other person has for what higher more exalted and more compelling goal can there be than to know god 
I want to to read this again real quick. Listen to what Packer says. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. I mean, that, and I, I believe him in that, is that for individuals to truly be geared up for life is that you have a goal. You have some, a big enough objective, right? A big, enough, a big enough objective in life that you can steer your allegiance to. Something that you're aiming for. Something that you're fighting for. Something that gets you up in the morning. Far too many people today do not have that goal. They don't have that thing that gets them up in the morning. That gets them excited about breathing. That says, I'm up and I'm ready for the day. I'm ready to pursue this. And here's what I will tell you. That promotions and big bank accounts, new jobs, those are not big enough goals. You may say, well, my goal is to get a doctorate, or my goal is to be CEO, or my goal is to have seven figures in the bank. And I'm telling you, your goals are too small. Your goals are too small. Packer says, and this, the Christian, has a way than no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? That is a goal worth getting up in the morning for. Today, I am getting up and I am breathing so that I might know God more. Because what happens? We got folks that are retired in here. Let's be real, let's be very real here, okay? You if you've made your entire life about building your bank account, about moving up the ladder, about getting more and more education, if you've made your entire life about that, about raising children, about helping with grandchildren, what happens when all of that is done? You're retired. Your bank account is what it is. Your job is no more. The kids have left home. What are you getting up for now? If it's not to get up to know God more, then what is there? We're just spinning our wheels. Even the individual who is bedridden, maybe in hospice, waiting for that final breath, can still have the goal when they wake up in the morning to know God more. It is a never-ending, compelling, exciting, joyful journey to your very last breath. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you, and here's the thing, okay? Now he, what he's going to do now is he says that you know God more, and then he's going to break that down. 
what that's going to look like, okay? This is what I mean about that seminary thing. It's just kind of like this staggered, uh, going in depth, what he means, right? The first is this. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious great inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So three things. Number one, the hope to which you've been called to. This is in verse 18. Now, Emily Dickinson, she describes hope like this, and I love this. She says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. That's hope. It is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops. It's just this tune perched in your soul. It doesn't have words, but it's leading to something, right? And R.C. Sproul, with a little bit more concreteness, says hope is called the anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6.19 because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. But rather it is which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Paul is praying for the saints that they would be enlightened with the knowledge of God, first and foremost, that they would have hope, that they would have the hope to which he has called us. The hope that when we come to Christ, when God, by his grace, gifts us faith, that we are then looking forward to this eternal promise that awaits to us, awaits for us. How is it that we live in it, that the Christian, that the Christian saved to a greater location, saved to a greater reality, how does the Christian endure, persevere in a sinful world filled with challenges and heartbreak and sadness Death and mayhem, how does the Christian endure if it's not for the hope that is perched in our soul? And that hope is in Christ. It is not a wish. It is not a wish. You do not have to rub a lamp praying that hope would pop out. That hope is given to us. By grace, in faith, and it is promised. Hoping in worldly things often leads to despair because they don't come to fruition. Oftentimes when we say hope, what we really mean is wish. But hope is not built on the fickleness and the, and the sinfulness of of man, but it is built on the concrete promises of God. And knowing God means that we know that hope. And what is so great is that our knowledge of God can grow as we are walking through this Christian life. 
even still as Christ as a child, the Bible in Luke says that Christ grew in knowledge. Folks, I don't believe that the Bible means that Christ grew in his ability to do algebra. I am quite certain that Jesus could do algebra. But that's not what it means. What it means when it says that Christ grew in knowledge, it means that he grew in knowledge of his Father, of his mission, of his ministry. And if Christ can grow in knowledge, shouldn't we all the days of our life? If you are struggling when you wake up in the morning saying, what is all this about? May I just suggest that your goals have been set too low. And you need to set new priorities. That's the first thing, hope. The second is the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. It says that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, some commentators, again, believe that this is God's inheritance we're going to continue with the theme that this is our inheritance that we are receiving from the Lord when we come to faith in Christ. He is saying that I wish that you would grow in knowledge of hope and of the riches that God has blessed you with. Christians should not be individuals that are constantly walking around withdrawn back emotions, with drooped heads, always looking at the floor, in some sort of despair and sadness, but that we walk upright with our back thrown back and our chest pushed forward, not in pride, but in the knowledge that the Lord in heaven has blessed us with these glorious riches. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of who He is and that He has chose us from the foundations of the earth. You have the knowledge as a Christian that because God is your Father and you have been covered in the shed blood of Christ, that you have been given a gift that is priceless. This morning, when Tasha rolled in with her two little ones, Madison was given a gift. Madison was given a gift, I believe, and the whole all and it had something with, with that 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 oh my gosh that forsaken movie Frozen, um, and they're making a second one, um, or have they made the second one? They've already made it. Oh Lord bless us. Oh my gosh. Okay. All right. Okay. Whew. I'm gonna go home and watch the Ten Commandments after this just to rid it from my mind. But anyway, Madison pulls out the and she turns it around and Elsa. Is it Elsa or Elijah? What, what is it? Elsa? Elsa? Okay. She, Elsa's face is on the front, and the whole, the whole time she says, It's Elsa! It's frozen! I mean, just freaking out, right? That's the enthusiasm that we should have for the glorious riches that God has blessed us with. When Christ, every morning that we wake up, it's like pulling that Elsa shirt out of them is so much greater and saying blessings upon blessings upon blessings. That's what we've been given with. And, and here's what's fascinating. 
I, I love this because as you are younger, you don't appreciate it. We don't. We don't. Listen, if we are saved when we are young, okay, we've got some youngsters in here who have been, who have committed their lives to Christ, they've been baptized, and, and I trust that the Lord is working a good work in them. But I'm just going to be blunt, and I'm looking at the little kids here, I'm looking at you, they do not fully understand at this moment the glorious riches that they have been blessed with. They take it for granted. They take it for granted. Because they're like, you know, 10 or 12 years old. But the reality is, the reality is, is that as they continue to get, grow in the knowledge of Christ, as they continue to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, they are going to learn to, they are going to co begin comprehending what those blessings really are. And they are going to come to appreciate it. And that's what Paul is asking. Paul is asking or praying that they would grow in that knowledge and be equipped with that understanding. And finally, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward believers. It says here, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? They're growing in that understanding. Now, this immeasurable greatness of his power, Paul then continues to break down even more. You see what I'm saying there? He just continues to build on himself. And so I've listed three things that this power is listed at. First is raising Christ from the dead. It says the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. First off, this he is praying that God would bless them with the knowledge of hope, the glorious blessings, uh, the glorious gifts that he's been given, and third, this his immeasurable greatness, which is one raising Christ from the dead. Paul wants us to understand that the power that is in us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. There is a comfort in knowing that the Holy Spirit living in us is the same Spirit that raises Christ from an empty tomb. There is comfort in there. There is assurance in that. If your salvation, if your, the assurance of your salvation, if the assurance of your salvation rests in what you have accomplished, then it's no wonder that people have anxiety. It's no wonder that people struggle with their concerns about whether or not they are actually saved. But if your hope and your assurance in your own faith and in your salvation rests in the work of God and in the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead, then why are we anxious at all? There's no need for anxiety there because that power is within us. Number two is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It means that God has given Christ dominion over everything. He want, Paul wants the church to know that Christ has dominion. Now here in a little bit, in, uh, as we lead into chapter 2, 
Paul's going to refer to the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan, okay? He's going to refer to him. And he's going to refer to the fact that Satan has some leeway, if you will, in what he does. But we need not forget that the person who has true dominion over all things is Christ because God gave him that dominion. So we give Satan way too much credit. We give Satan way too much power in our lives and over the things around us. We have to remember that Satan is just a pawn in God's grand story. He's just a character. I'm not saying he's not dangerous, but he is not equal to Christ. He's not. We were in a Bible study one time. Oh my gosh, this must have been about a decade ago. And I was in a Bible study, and we were talking about Satan. We were talking about the devil. And as we were in there talking about it, and we were discussing it, I got, I got to be concerned about the discussion. And, I, I, and at this point, I, I had not been as um, uh, indebted to God's Word as I am now. Uh, but I, I, I was starting my studies and starting to learn how to read the Bible better and stuff and, and you know things like that. And then all of a sudden... They were talking about this about Satan, and what I realized is that is that they were almost giving Satan the attributes of Christ. They were giving Satan the same exact attributes of Christ. They were giving him the omnipotence. They were giving him the the omniscience. They were giving him not the benevolence, but they were almost making it. You've heard of this yin and this yang type that 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 Christ is one, that Satan's the other, and that there's this equal battle going on. Folks, that couldn't be further from the truth. Satan is not all-knowing. He knows more than you, but he does not know more than Christ. Satan does not see into your hearts. Satan cannot peer into your heart. Christ can. Satan cannot. Satan does not know the future. He doesn't know the future. He only knows what's in the Word, like us. Satan has not been given some sort of divine revelation that you all have not been and that I have not been given. Satan is not special in that way, Satan is not all powerful. He's more powerful than you and I, but he is not more powerful than Christ. Christ has been given dominion over all of these things. And finally, he's been given authority. Christ has been given authority. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all the rule, all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Christ has been given authority not just then, not just now, but forever. Christ has authority. And Paul is praying that God would enlighten us with this information. That we would know this. It is very, it, it's very 
anxious, anxiety-inducing, going through life, believing that, Satan, that Christ is having to do battle day in and day out with Satan. And we're just like, I don't know who's going to win. I don't know who's going to win this fight. Folks, that's not what's happening. Christ wins every single battle. Every single battle. There is not a battle that he is losing in. And you might say, well, didn't he lose at the cross? Cross? No, he didn't. He willingly gave his life up. If you all remember the movie, because many of us haven't read the book, The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. Now, if kids were watching that movie, not knowing that it's an allegory, you'll see Aslan the lion get on that altar where he's getting ready to be killed. And as he's sitting on that altar, all the children, and even the adults, are sitting there, no, our hero's going to be slain. And he gets slain. And it seems like all is lost. But what happens? That was the plan all along. And he comes back. Christ has dominion and he has authority. And Paul wants us to know this. J.I. Packer says, I need not torment myself with the fear that my faith may fail. As grace led me to faith in the first place, so grace will keep me believing to the end. Faith, both in its origin and continuance, is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. Paul wants us to know this. That's what he's praying. He's praying, God, please enlighten the hearts of these churches so that they would know your immeasurable grace, your goodness, your kindness, your power, your authority over all things. It is true, and I've seen this over and over and over, that individuals that approach life with a lack of confidence often come up short of what they could achieve. I'm not saying that they can't do good things. I'm not saying that they couldn't do great things. But individuals who approach life with a lack of confidence often fall short. I've also seen individuals who approach life with such an extreme confidence fail mightily because their confidence is placed in the wrong thing. But if we place our confidence and our trust in Christ, you cannot fail. You will not come up short. You won't. And there will be more joy as we pursue the Lord. Paul wants the church to persevere, and that perseverance is a fruit of knowing God, believing God, which leads to assurance in God. We need to be a people whose assurance is not derived in traditions 
and functions of the church, which are important, but they are not almighty. Our assurance comes from the Lord. When we lack assurance, we begin to go our own way, to make our own way, which will always lead to disaster. But knowing the assurance of our salvation brought about by God's grace towards us leads to glory. It is my prayer for us that as we pursue the Lord, as we pursue a greater knowledge of God and Christ Jesus, that we will grow in faith, we will grow in love, and our ministry will bear fruit regardless of our address. Regardless of our address. Now, is the address important? It's an important thing. It's not the most important thing. Is our bank account important? It is important. It's not the most important thing. Believe it or not, Believe it or not, a church in the United States can exist and be fruitful without any paid staff, without a roof over our heads, without being acknowledged by the IRS. You don't have to have a tax-exempt number to do the Lord's will. You don't. You don't have to have that. Paul didn't have it. It wasn't like he was being acknowledged by the powers that be in, the, in Rome. He was just getting arrested by them. That's what he was doing. We need to realize, we need to come to understand and, and find comfort in the fact that our well-being is secured in Christ. All this other stuff, and by the way, I'm guilty of it. Oh my God, our, ele our electric bill was $2,000 this month. Somebody keep, get those kids to shut off the bathroom lights, because we know that's what it was, right? Our water bill jumped up 10 bucks. Somebody's flushing the toilet too much. You only flush every other time, folks. Remember, we're trying to save money here. So now, now here's the thing, okay? I fret over this. I have. I, I'm like, you know, I worry. I, I, I'll concern myself about this. And then I read this, this word and Paul's thanksgiving and all of his prayer. It had nothing to do with the building or anything like that. It was just the fact that they were being faithful. And so here's what I will say. If a building or a bank account... Okay, If a building or a bank account or the air conditioners or the electric or anything like that starts impeding us from being the church and doing, then let's get rid of it. Let's, just get, let's give it away. Let's give it to somebody else. All right? Let it be their trouble. They can have it. Okay, They can have it. right? And we're all just going to park in Christie's front yard and we're going to have church there. She's already paying a mortgage. We might use it too. Okay, And so she's a good cook. And we'll just go over there and we'll have church, you know. 
Now, I'm being facetious, but the reality is, is that we could do something like that, and we could still be the church. Now, I want us to have a building, I want us to have a bank account, and I want us to do those churchy things, right? Because those are good things, they're not bad things. But let's not depend on those things. Let's not depend on those things. That's just stuff. Let us do the work that the Lord has called us to. And the work that He has called us to is to love one another and love our community. That's the work that He has called us to. So let's just do it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning, Lord. Father, I ask that You would bless us and keep us and help us to be faithful, Lord, in all that we do. Father, I pray that we would grow in knowledge of hope, in knowledge of your power, of your kindness. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.